Any people here who have not heard even one talk of the series? Okay. Uh, I'll give a very brief review, but obviously there have been many talks, and so it won't be possible to uh, totally bring you up to where we are. Although, in one sense, I've been saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. Um, the essence of Dharma teaching is not all that complicated. The part that's difficult is the doing of it. To summarize a lot of things, we've been moving through these classical reflections on aging, sickness, and death. Uh, The first three messengers that the Buddha whether really did or as part of the lore of Buddhist tradition, encountered as part of his uh, inspiring him to begin to practice. And the fourth messenger was a meditator, a meditating yogi. And we've gone through a series of reflections, cultivating certain kinds of notions, even visualizations. We may get to one this evening. And of course, the standby is the direct observation of our experience. And I would say an ongoing theme throughout all of it, whether we're talking about aging or sickness or dying, uh, is a certain tension that exists. One way to characterize practice is that it's Uh, it's learning the art of being intimate with all things. Obviously, most important, ourselves. In fact, you won't be intimate with anything if you're not intimate with yourself. Intimate used here in a a special way. It's not a romantic or sentimental meaning. No separation. Being able to receive the moment without any separation. And many, many things which perhaps we don't consider to be separation in this way of looking at things are. There are subtle ways in which we get between ourselves and ourselves, and ourselves and the experience of our environment, including people. Without any meditative training, the issue of the difference between, let's say, raw experience and the way in which this experience is enshrouded in ideas and concepts and notions doesn't occur to us. We really think that we're, uh, we see what's going on, and it's as simple as that. As you go on in practice, uh, perhaps what you may learn, I know that I did, is that it was very hard to tell the difference at first. It becomes very difficult to tell the difference between what we think is our direct and intimate experience of what's happening and the deep conditioning that we all have we all have a, a share in a wonderful human heritage, all the different cultures. We also share in some aspects of that heritage that's not so wonderful. And as necessary as all of that is, 
it tends to get between us and the moment. We tend to see the moment uh, through a scheme of interpretation or likes or dislikes. We tend to translate it into something else. We have strong likes and dislikes and see through that filter, all the while uh, speaking and acting as if it's clear as a bell. And practice begins to be really helpful as we're able to discern the difference between ideas about what's happening and the actuality of what's happening. That the description is not the described. Everything is just what it is. And we have an elaborate set of notions, starting with names, of what's happening. When we get to aging, sickness, and death, you have, I think, a very interesting tension, which I hope I've at least uh, been somewhat successful in bringing out. That's it. That's what the Buddha is talking about. Okay. Um, These stages in life, which everyone of necessity goes through, without exception, we all, if you have a body, that body must age, no matter how much you care for it, no matter how much you love it. Uh, And illness isn't just the illnesses, let's say a cold or this or that, but it's really on the way as the body begins to break down and inevitably die. What could be more close to us? It's right in our face. These basic existential facts, they're all around us. Wherever we look, we can see. We see the different ages. People are born and die. There's obituary in newspapers. You turn on the news. You look around and you see the different ages of people. And people are, leave us long before perhaps we ourselves depart. And so in one sense it's right, close. And in terms of being intimate with it, there's this tendency to push it away. So we have tremendous resistance towards something that couldn't be more basic. It's, it's life itself. It's not special. It's not like any one of us is singled out. It's a normal aspect of living. Whatever is born must age and it must die. And that includes everything. There's nothing left out. And yet, we have a way of avoiding that sometimes for our entire life. Okay, so uh, the approach here, of what the Buddha is trying to do, is to help us see not only the, uh, is to see the, the necessity of beginning to see that and to uh, wake up. It's a, a wake-up call. We've, we've met, went through the first three of Atisha's notions on, on, on dying, ways of practicing Maranasati, death awareness. Uh, they're all a wake-up call. And if you recall the uh, benefits that can come from uh, reflecting on these facts, simple thoughts like everyone has to die, can be, one, it can flush out uh, what are called anusaya, the latent tendencies, fears that we have, anxieties that we have, that we're not in touch with. 
but that weigh heavily on us anyway. The fact that we're not in touch with them doesn't mean that they don't affect us. And we know that from Western psychology. Freud and his descendants have documented that, I think, rather beautifully. So some of why we do this is to flush out fears that we might have, apprehension that we might have, so that we can live now. If we can uh, bring, uh, we have to practice with it, bringing it, just flushing it out isn't enough. And uh, those of us who are practitioners in my remarks are always directed towards people who are practicing or who are considering it. Uh, You wouldn't want to bring your fears up if you weren't able to do something useful with them. What would be the point? So that's an assumption. The other is, if you recall, Samvega, the urgency of practice. You begin to see that you don't have forever. But also uh, the emotion that comes from realizing that it's not hopeless. We're not helpless and it's not hopeless. That the practice itself, the teachings, and especially, of course, putting the teachings into practice, enable us to actually do something with aging, sickness, and death, those conditions, so that they become stepping stones to liberation. Rather than seeing it as just something as bad news or an obstacle, or if only this weren't here, I could really be having a good life. The tremendous amount of energy that's trapped inside of, let's say, the fear of aging, or the aversion to it, or the apprehension or despondency over it, or a serious illness, or death. Just picture if that energy were released, which, of course, is what meditation does. It's a kind of a massive meltdown, and that we have that energy for ourselves to use. So one of the things that comes out of these reflections and observations, or it can, and only you know, some of you have been coming to these talks, I don't know, I hope you bring it up during our discussion period, has it helped you to see how precious life is? Has it helped you to get your priorities in order? Uh, To see uh, how you're living and is that how you want to live? If so, full speed ahead. If not, why not? Why are you allowing yourself to drift in a way that uh, is not beneficial? Why, Why do we do that? All of us tend to do that. And of course, from the Buddhist point of view, uh, it's explicit that part of those priorities of getting our, getting our life in order is the priority to practice the Dharma. But I would say, even if you don't, you know, it's common. Let's say there's a, a, a scare. Someone you love almost dies but doesn't. And, or you almost die. Or a serious illness. Or some near mishap that doesn't quite happen. And suddenly we appreciate uh, the people in our life. We see them freshly. Suddenly ordinary things become valued rather than uh, this routinized familiarity, kind of obstinate familiarity that the people we see day in and day out and the uh, aspects of our life kind of, uh, what was that film? Uh, Groundhog Day, you know, over and over and over the same thing. 
Um, and I, we, that theme has been coming up over, again, over and again throughout. Um, using these obvious facts and even the resistance to it, the aversion to it, uh, to be the materials with which we practice. They're not interfering with our practice. They are the practice. There are important elements in it. But based on some of the questions last Wednesday, I thought through some of them and I felt I better balance it off a bit. I'm not saying you have to walk around obsessed with aging, sickness, and death. Take that on as a meditation, constantly being preoccupied with it. That doesn't sound too useful. Nor is that the only thing that stirs us to practice. Let me suggest one that for me seems obvious. The joy of learning. That is, some of why we practice, some of why I practice, I would say mainly. At first, it's largely on faith. And maybe a a few uh, LSD trips. Then you want to perpetuate them without the drugs. And after a while you realize that that's not what it's about at all. But at least got you in the door. But if you keep practicing, at least for myself, uh, and you take the, the meditative instructions, you, uh, you set them in motion, you do them, and you have uh, some continuity to your practice, you may discover that it's actually a rather wonderful way to live. Uh, it keeps you fresh. It keeps the mind young. Uh, you're constantly growing, no matter what the age of your body. Uh, it has a, a, a quieter kind of passion. It is a quieter kind of passion, but it's a passion if it, if it grows to a certain point. But that has to come from your experience, from your actual uh, uh, the taste, the actual fruit that comes from practice. At a certain point, uh, all the inspiration in the world, from the Buddha, from teachers, from tapes, videos, uh, how much of that can you stand, for goodness sakes? At a certain point, it's got to come from, from the heart, from your own heart. And when it does, uh, the, the call to practice is just obvious. You do it just the way you would breathe or or uh, eat a good meal. It's something that, it's not even, I wouldn't even call it a discipline. And if you don't take into account aging, sickness, and death, I don't see how it could be a real practice about real people in a real life. Because those don't go away. They're always with us. And so my hope is, as the hope has been through generations of practitioners now for a few thousand years, is that in some small way, even reflecting on it a little bit, uh, makes a positive contribution to your life. Helps you take a look at how you're living and perhaps to uh, bring more energy into what needs to be done. We left off with the reflection, everyone has to die. Uh, they, for those of you who are really new, and there are more here this evening than usual, there are nine reflections uh, formulated by an Indian uh, yogi named Atisha. He is actually quite influential in, the, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism. Those of you who have studied Tibetan Buddhism probably have heard his name. Uh, what he has systematized is in the original teachings of the Buddha. It's all there. But he's arranged it in a way that enables us to uh, use it as a, as a rather convenient and useful practice, at least for some people. 
And we went through that. We went through the fact that everyone has to die. Uh, how does that become more real? Through reflection. Just a thought, when taken up enough times, turned over in consciousness. Let's say if you uh, take it up in a contemplative or meditative way and there's some quiet in the mind, there's some stillness, that thought has much more vibrancy when you listen to it. When the mind is very, very still and you introduce the thought, I must die, everyone must die, uh, I'm not exempt from this lawfulness. You hear it right now, I hear it right now. But of those of you who have been practicing for a while, you know when the mind becomes very still, everything is received differently, and that's what I meant by receiving the moment without separation. And so a thought like, everyone must die, or we covered this last week as well, our lifespan is decreasing continuously, from breath to breath, from moment to moment, tick-tock, tick-tock. Time is running out. Okay, we all know that. But when the mind has some stability, some calm, and those words, or the, the fact, the truth of those statements, touches that stillness, it stimulates a kind of understanding that you could call wisdom or intelligence of a kind that is, is beyond the rational, which is useful as well. But all too often we end things there or it becomes a barrier. Because if you're really good at using your rational mind, when you explain something, the fulfillment from the explanation can be so great that it actually keeps you from being intimate with what it is that you're attending to. And that's what I meant by sometimes people will think, oh, I am intimate with this. I've thought about this a thousand times. Yeah, that's the problem. Can you drop the thinking about it and let it touch you at a place that's before thinking. And of course, that's the direction the practice goes in. And intimacy of practice is finally where any notions or representations that you might have about anything, particularly who you are, starts to more and more go into abeyance, at least from time to time, and enable you to experience directly whatever it is that you're experiencing. It could be a very simple, ordinary thing like a statement, death is inevitable, or uh, time is running out, or if you're called, and I believe we ended here, the amount of time spent during our life de you, uh, devoted to Dharma is very small. Whether you practice Dharma or not, whether you have a meditation practice or not, the law of impermanence just rolls on. It really doesn't care. It doesn't care whether you approve of it or disapprove of it, or whether you're going to meditate or you hate meditation. Uh, abundant evidence. It's, it's just all over the place. But even those of us who are devoted to practice, we're encouraged to take a look. How much of your life is really spent in practice? Now, often the first answer is, oh my goodness, very little. I sit in the morning, but it's only about 45 minutes, and then at night it's only 20 minutes. If it were that, it would be, I think, hopeless. It's not just about sitting. So, in a certain sense, practice is meant to be something to be lived. It's living wisdom, and the, the practice is something that is a way of living. 
At a certain point, if you are still stuck in techniques, uh, you ought to question it, reflect on it. If the techniques have created an enclosure where you think practice happens, like CIMC, IMS, this church, uh, some monastery in Thailand or India or someplace like that, as useful as all these social creations have been, including the different roles that have been invented. Awareness is available to us every moment of our life. It's always present. The ability to, to look and to listen is there. And the, what follows from that, the ability to learn from what we see and hear is always available to us. So from that point of view, uh, this might inspire you to, uh, to make it a way of living rather than a kind of esoteric, refined activity, sitting two hours, an hour in the morning, an hour, all the different formulas. Some say 20 minutes, depending on, you know, the Maharishi used to say 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, and people would come to me, and uh, if you mention any other time, they would get upset. I'd say, Gawinka says an hour in the morning, an hour at night. Fine, you know, great, do it. Wisdom doesn't come from uh, clocking your sitting. As Ajahn Chah used to say over and over, a chicken sits and frogs sit for long periods of time. They don't necessarily wise up. And neither do, neither do we. Okay. Uh, I hope we can move through all nine this evening. Uh, some of us are on the verge of getting our social security checks, and I'd rather finish before that happens. Okay. The fourth is human life expectancy is uncertain. That's our lot as human beings, isn't it? It's a difficult one. We know we're going to die, but we don't know when. It's uncertain. Uh, one way to teach this, and it's the way I teach it when we have uh, uh, practice groups or for some individuals who want to do this, is to begin with just the basic approach of Vipassana meditation. Calm the mind and then begin to see impermanence, anicca. Just to see that any bodily condition, any mental condition arises and passes away, it lacks self. To see that over and over and over again. Because that provides you with a foundation to really understand these things, which are really not different than the basic teachings of the Buddha. It's just that the content is very dramatic. It's saying you are impermanent. Not just your breath or the pain in the knee or a cloud formation. You are impermanent. And I think that's the great contribution or one of the great contributions of the Buddha. Everyone has known about impermanence. It's, an, uh, it's not headlines. You're not going to read the New York Times. Uh, teacher at CIMC declares life impermanent. It's old news. It's, everyone knows it. What the Buddha did, as far as I know, I don't know who else did it in a systematic and careful way, and also equipped the mind to be able to do it. He said, including the one who knows that it's impermanent, that knower is impermanent too. Not only can't you set foot in the same stream twice, but the one who's doing the stepping is changing. And when you study this law at work in yourself, the liberative power that's, that's in it is dramatically different than if you see whole civilizations are gone. You can reflect on that. It can be useful. You can get all teary-eyed, write a, a nice poem or an essay or a PhD thesis. 
But I don't know, unless you're an unusually sensitive person who's rather spiritually mature to begin with, I think you, it, it's imperative to begin to see that that law applies to us. Okay, uncertain. Um, one of the main meanings of anicca, of impermanence, is uncertainty. If you read the way impermanence is used uh, in the Buddhist teachings, you'll see that because everything's changing, and because everything's changing because conditions are impermanent that support what it is you're looking at, uh, the changes themselves uh, don't necessarily go according to schedule, meaning our schedule. They're uncertain. And the time that we die is uncertain, and there are teachings all over the place. Just this afternoon, I, uh, I took a 20-minute break, I flipped on the History Channel, and there was a, a segment, I just caught the tail end on something about something going on, I guess the, the wars in Israel and bringing it up to date. And they showed a scene of Yitzhak Rabin having a peace rally in this huge square in Israel. And there was a, a tremendous number of people with, uh, you could just see over, an overpouring of uh, a hope for peace and a yearning for peace. And he was overwhelmed because he never expected that many people to come. And for those who came, to uh, be so demonstrative, and they were, even from the film you could see it. And he said it was the happiest evening of his life. And a few minutes later he was dead, he was assassinated. Uh, so you can see, now we don't need a famous historical person, uh, and we don't even need major things. You want to have a picnic and it rains. You can plan, it's not that we don't plan, I had a plan to come here, but uh, Part of practice is certainly letting go uh, when you don't get what you want, which is once in a while. Have you noticed? Yeah. 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 You too. Good. I don't feel so lonely. Okay, so human life expectancy is uncertain. Even though it's definite, we don't know when. It's kind of a little hook thrown in there. There are many causes of death. You all know this one, too. In fact, all of these are self-evident. They're really quite simple, even simple-minded and obvious. They only become useful if you uh, take them up and let them work on you. Uh, you can open up a medical book, which I did once, and it's endless technical names for all the different ways in which you can go. Wars, assassination, volcanoes, eruptions, uh, floods, uh, hurricanes, uh, just natural causes like old age, different diseases, uh, accidents. If you bring it together, the uncertainty and the, uh, the many causes. Uh, I found going to an old cemetery, like the Mount Auburn Cemetery, if you look at it, it's, it really wouldn't, it, you don't need Mount, any cemetery, but if it's old, it's good because you see not only that this has been going on for a while, which it obviously has, way before there was even a Mount Auburn Cemetery, obviously. That's just, that's contemporary. But you see the different dates at which people die. You see infants who die, and of course we know that uh, there's death uh, in the womb. 
And then you see people who are 98, 94, 12, 27, one and a half years old, baby X. Uh, it's uncertain. And the, the human being, the human body is tremendously adaptable. Just think of how those of us have gotten this far. It's quite an achievement. I think we, everyone in this room probably deserves a medal and without even knowing you, just that we've gotten this far. But also, we're also fragile, not only emotionally. Our feelings can be hurt so easily, but the body itself. If struck in the wrong place, or if congested in the wrong place, or a certain strength of infection, uh, it can be over very, very quickly and uh, unplanned, in an unplanned for way. So all of these, uh, I think, are, are obvious, and now that it starts to, these, we're down to the last three. reflections that Atisha offers us up to practice. And what he's saying is, that it's under a, a heading that says roughly, the different translations, the fact that only insight into Dharma can help us at the time of death. I don't mean to limit that to Buddha Dharma. I think any training that a person's had in inner work, in spiritual work, uh, of course can be helpful at that time. But here is, that's, it's set off against these obvious statements as well. Our possessions and enjoyments cannot help. That is, no matter how much you've amassed in terms of money, a beautiful home, fantastic car, wonderful clothes, each one selected with great care and attention, uh, rare books, well, you know, it goes on and on, the things that uh, in part make life worth living. We all have things that we love to collect, that we pay for, having the money itself. It's endless. Uh, when the time comes, none of that can help us. None of that can help us. It doesn't mean to get rid of it, and we'll go into this in a moment, because this actually is a very, very important point that will connect up with our daily life practice. And, and I hope to at least touch upon that uh, this evening. Our loved ones can't help. No matter how much people love you, no matter how much you love another person, when, they're, when the body starts to go and then its time is up, there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. It's not negotiable. Yeah. These are all different doors into the same truth, if you've noticed. And if one door appeals to you, walk through that one. Any of these nine are, in a way, the same. And the third, our own body can't help us. Uh, for quite a while, many years, um, I've taken fairly good care of my body, certainly as the average person goes, I would say, way beyond. I uh, changed my diet many years ago. I still have a, a number of little things that I do, like 
nothing better than a cup of coffee and a blueberry muffin and reading the New York Times. But my vices in terms of diet are not too much worse than that, believe it or not. I do yoga. I usually get a nice walk in. I uh, keep reasonable, reasonably hygienic. I eat, uh, probably I'm supporting bread and circus single-handedly, <laughs> funneling vitamins and minerals and trace elements and organic food, guzzling it down. I do breathing exercises in the morning. And you know what? I'm going to die anyway. So the heck with it. What are you bothering for? For goodness sakes, just pig out. Have a good time. So this body uh, is subject to certain lawfulness, independent of what we want, think, and so forth. Some bodies will live longer, and if we've cared for them, uh, the outcome may be uh, not only longer, but less pain, but even that's not a guarantee. It's the mind that the whole teaching is about. Do you remember last week I read to you from, um, from Taoism? I definitely would rather listen to Woof Woof Woof. By the way, I've had teachers in the Korean tradition, Japanese tradition, Vietnamese tradition, Burmese, and I always ask them, what do dogs sound like in your country? And they all have a different name. Wang 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 in Korea. <laughs> they hear it that way. They say Wang Wang Wang. I say, no, it's Woof Woof Woof. <laughs> say, it is not. It's Wang Wang Wang. Yeah. Isn't it Woof Woof Woof? Bow wow, that's a little too. Okay. Humans are born soft and flexible. In death, they become stiff and hard. Plants are born, born soft and pliable. When dead, they become brittle and dry. Therefore, those who are stiff and rigid become disciples of death, while those who are soft and yielding become disciples of life. The hard and stiff break. The soft and supple triumph. So the, the body must run its course. The body has to do what it has to do. But does the mind have to? And of course, that's the whole thrust of the Buddhist teaching. It's, it's seeing that the source of tremendous, unnecessary suffering and even torment is in the mind. Is it possible for the mind to be clear in an aging body, in a sick body, and even in a dying body? The answer from Dharma is yes. Perhaps some of you have had some experience already, beginning to see the beginnings of the possibilities, that your happiness can more and more be independent of the conditions that you live in, whether the, and, and, and the condition of our body is a central condition. That there's a place that's deeper than what it seems to be happening to us. The, 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that the Chinese talk about. That's the direction the practice is going in, and 
a way of formulating it which is not exclusive to Buddhism. I think you find it in all the great mystical traditions. If you can die before you die, then when you die, you don't die. And this is what you probably have read about coming to the unborn, coming to the unconditioned. To really um, be done with fear of death probably requires coming to a place that uh, has nothing to do with birth or death. And what the teachings are saying is that each one of us has access to it. Not only do we have access to it, but in the most fundamental and deep sense we are it. And so in that sense, and here's what I'd like to link that to. Uh, Before that, I do want to cover one thing briefly. And, well, let's see if we can do it. This is just to give you a feeling for another kind of practice. I'm going to make a few very simple suggestions, but we're not going to go into this thoroughly. So that you understand that there are many different ways to practice death awareness. This one is a uh, traditional one that come, is called the charnel ground meditations. And it's from the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, and it can be practiced with real uh, corpses in different stages of decomposition. Or, and for most of us, the or is uh, more probable, through visualization. Now, by the way, in terms of method, and I'm sorry to leave out those of you who haven't been here, uh, there is a limit to how much I can review. When you come to the fact of the last three that I just mentioned, uh, that your possessions can't help you, finances, possessions, uh, the people who love you can't help you, they can ease the passage. Sometimes they make it worse by the way they behave or your attachment to them. And the body itself can't help you. One way in which it's been done, it's not uh, a modern uh, New Age introduction, it's been done long before uh, Ram Das or anyone else, um, is you, um, you visualize yourself on your own deathbed. Uh, some of the descriptions of it are uh, the way the Buddha supposedly died. I don't, I don't know. If you remember in 331 Broadway at CIMC, we have a room called the Reclining Buddha Room. And we call it that because there's a, a Buddha Rupa, a form of the Buddha lying down on the right side, supporting the head, the left arm on the body, uh, the body of, of, uh, of dying. But you can just lie on your back and the visualization would be to begin to feel you losing touch, your faculties starting to become weaker, your senses starting to not be able to deliver, the body starting to lose energy, objects not being as clear, etc., uh, etc. Et and begin to see what it brings up. In other words, it's practicing dying while still alive. I don't recommend it for everyone. In fact, I recommend it for hardly anyone. It has to be right for you because it can, uh, the point is to use all of these practices to help us get free. It's not to make life worse than it already is. And that, the kind of, that kind of reflection is useful if you're ready for it. 
By the way, there are a series of uh, talks by Joan Halifax, uh, put out by Sound True, called Being with, Being with Dying. And there are a few guided meditations there that uh, I think might be helpful if any of you want to go into them. I've given some guided meditations in the past, but I don't know. I think they've a tape that IMS, but I'm not sure. Um, so you can use visualization to simulate, approximate what it might be, and of course practice with what it brings up. Here are these charnel ground meditations uh, put forward from the time of the Buddha. They're taught for different reasons. Sometimes if a person has an inordinate attachment to the body, uh, this can be useful. Often it's for celibate monks. Uh, this kind of a, um, a meditation is not necessarily useful across the board. Some of it is to neutralize a, uh, a strong, even uh, powerful, narcissistic, to use a modern term, relationship to our body, and to neutralize it by showing the course of the body, the part, what's inside, what happens to it. It's not to cultivate aversion, which would be silly. We already have aversion. Uh, and it's also used to help us learn really the most important renunciation. You hear talk about renunciation a lot in spiritual settings. And now there's a big dilemma in the modern, in the West. Uh, are we, do we renounce enough? Are we getting too comfortable? Uh, is it too posh and cush on retreats? Uh, and that's a useful uh, dialogue to have, but from my point of view, it's overstated. Uh, the real renunciation is the fundamental one. Can you renounce your identifications? We use just about everything to identify with as being me or mine, including being a monk or a nun, including being extremely simple, poverty-stricken, humble, having one suit of clothes, and it's made up of whatever. None of those are guaranteed or anything. They're conventions, and they, can't, they have been useful for some people over the centuries. But finally, it's that identification. It's the hardest one for us humans to let go of. So when we say, for example, all of your collections, your rare books, and your CD-ROMs, and your this and your that, and fantastic compu uh, commu computer can't help you, uh, part of why it's such a problem is that we're identified with them, with our house, our car, etc. Uh, and those are the materials out of which we construct a sense of self, which is a curse. But maybe we don't know it, or we don't see that the source of our suffering is there. Because there's also a lot of fulfillment in the self. At any rate, uh, this particular, I'm going to go through a bit of it, uh, these can be visualized. I see my body dead for a few days, bloated, blue, festering. I see my body, my dead body, infested with worms and flies. All that's left of my body is a skeleton with some flesh and blood still clinging to it. I further consider my skeletal corpse without any flesh, yet still spotted with blood and held together with tendons. I'm going to move ahead. It keeps going like that. 
a year passes and I see that my dead body is reduced to being a pile of old bones. And finally, these bones decay and become dust, blown apart and scattered by the wind. They cannot even be called bones anymore. Um, I've had training in that particular method, one, uh, two different kinds, one spontaneous and one uh, using this outline itself. To take the outline first, it's not mechanical. For example, if there's a particular organ or part of the body that you're for some reason drawn to, you can visualize what all of that, that it must go through as it finally winds up being dust and spread. For me, it was bones. I've always drawn, been drawn to bones. Now, this may be hard to believe, especially if some of you are new, but if you do it, and I wasn't a beginner when I did it, there's a tremendous feeling of lightness after you do it. It's not a depressing thing. If it's very, very depressing, that's all it is, it's probably a clue that you should stay away from because it's helping your mind become more real. The truth is, this does happen to material. Materials go through this kind of thing. It's not good, bad, or indifferent, it's just true. And if you can get comfortable with the truth, it's always easier on whatever level we're talking about. But I would have a healthy caution and even precaution about doing it. Some people just jump in uh, sometimes out of desperation. That is not the reason to do this. You've tried everything else, it doesn't work, I'll do this meditation and just see myself as dead. I wouldn't, please. The other uh, way in which I had experience with it, and this can give you a sense of how it can be useful, I was doing a, a retreat some years ago, a self-retreat in my cabin, and my teacher was in another cabin, uh, not too far away, and happily sitting and nice and peaceful, and suddenly he broke in at it, uh, oh, late at night possibly early in the morning, I don't know. No, it was about 11 or 12. All excited. We have a great thing has been thrust our way. Drop your sitting meditation. Get dressed. Let's, let's go. I said, what happened? He said, well, someone uh, got drunk and was washed into the bay, uh, drowned in the bay and was out at, the, out at sea for 10 days and just got washed up on the beach and the people living in this village don't want to have anything to do with it for some religious reason, I don't know what it was, until tomorrow when a certain priest and the person's family is coming, and they asked us, because we, were, we weren't from that village, if we would sit with the body all night, it's packed in ice from the local whatever, from, you know, liquor store. And so this is what you uh, interrupted my meditation with. Uh, he was so happy. He said, this is a wonderful opportunity for you. This is a while back. I wish it had happened a little, you know, 10 years later, but it didn't. It happened when it did. And so we sat there with this bloated blue body. It was more like the first description. It had certain smell. Um, I went through many, many changes. We sat through it for the entire night. We stayed up with it. And all he did, which for those of you who are Vipassana practitioners, won't surprise you. And this is another theme that I hope I've been emphasizing enough in all of these talks. He would just say, uh, from time to time, he'd say, where are you? He could see that I was drifting off. I wasn't attending to the body, and most of all, my experience of the body. A revulsion, nausea, 
tremendous uh, yearning to just get out of that room and anything, just to get away from there. Uh, and he kept me in the moment. He kept me there. And he, from time to time, would probe and say, what, what's it like for you now? And I was doing my best. Sometimes I would cover up and he would poke around and get me to say what was really happening. And then he'd get quiet and say, okay, be with that. And at a certain point, it became obvious that this was, even you even get bored with it, it becomes nothing. It's not even a human anymore. It was invaluable, but I didn't think so for about three or four hours. Uh, at a certain point, I saw that it was flushing out a tremendous amount of apprehension and anxiety I didn't even know I had. And fortunately, I had someone there who was at home with all this. It, it was no big deal for him. Now, the practice was just this simple practice we always do, using the breath, using awareness, whatever, different versions of that. And what I've been suggesting throughout is that our ordinary practice, just as it is, is the best preparation for dying that you could possibly want. There are these special meditations, but finally, when the time comes to die, it will be a moment just like this. It will be a real place and a real time and there'll be a real you and possibly other real people alongside of you. You'll be breathing in some way. Your bodily sensations will feel a certain way. The mind will be a certain way. It is absolutely no different than being on the three-month retreat or whatever you want to tell me. Granted, the stage set will have changed quite a bit because what you'll be, and the challenging aspect of it will be enormous. You'll be asking us to be awake in the midst of our own dying now, clearly, but how you do it is not different. The instructions are not different. So that, for example, if during a retreat your leg hurts and you bring awareness to the pain and you see how, how, how averse the mind is to experiencing even the slightest discomfort and you develop that ability to stay with it so that you don't have to run every time there's something uncomfortable and even more so in the mind. Perhaps you're practicing with fear already. That's good. All of this will be helpful if and when, when the time comes to die, we're present. I mean, we're conscious and we're not, we're, it's not an immediate uh, accident or something that snuffs us out. And so just our ordinary practice, just as it is, is uh, very similar to what the Greek philosophers would say, that philosophy is preparation for dying. But I th think there's a deeper meaning to it, and I want to end by putting this on your mind, and then we'll start next time with this. From the point of view of all the wisdom teachings, the most important dying is not of the body. Whether you believe in rebirth, don't believe in rebirth, you go directly to heaven, you don't go to heaven, you're snuffed out, you're a Marxist, you're an atheist, well, maybe they don't care about what I'm about to say. But I don't know, maybe they do too. It, whatever label you have, or whatever set of ideas you have about what happens to you after this body starts to die. The important death is the great death, the death of, of me. It's the death of an ego, egocentric existence. Uh, let me just give you a hint, and this is where we'll start next time. When it says that, let's say your possessions can't help you, your car, your house, your rare book collection, your, uh, what can I tell you? You know what's precious to you. Krishnamurti once, when he was, we asked him about death, and he said, 
what is it that you cherish most? And so each person said something else. And he said, okay, drop it. He said, that's what dying is. You don't, it's over, drop it. And you could see, what, what, now you want me to do it? Um, but what if you died to that now? I mean, not wait until you're on your deathbed. But the dying I'm talking about is a very different kind of dying. It's a dying to the attachment to your house. It's a dying to the attachment to your bank account. It's a dying to the attachment to your rare books, etc., etc. It's not that you have to throw it all out or give it away. Now, potentially, it does cause suffering. And that's why there's always an encouragement to live simply. But even living simply is no guarantee. Anyone who's been in robes know how you can ferociously attach to the few things that you have. Your bowl becomes special. I had a set of robes in Korea. I would have killed anyone who tried to get rid, take those robes from me. And at the end, when it was time to go home, someone actually wanted my robes. A Korean monk said, you're going home, you don't need it, it's not that important, you're a layperson anyway. What the heck, you have a beautiful set of robes. This very old Korean woman wove this beautiful set for me, which I was enjoyed, and he wanted them. Uh, and I struggled with it, but I gave it to him. It was, it was the right thing to do. You can see I haven't, still haven't gotten over it. <laughs> it was only 20 years ago, it's okay. <laughs> okay. I hope he's happy with his damn robes. <laughs> okay. Think of what our, our practice, and this is, uh, it's not like you have to, let's say, paint on, a, on this huge canvas, and that is either you're totally non-attached to any of your possessions, or you're uh, just craving and frothing at the mouth, you're uh, grasping so hard at everything that happens, want, want, want all day long, and getting it and holding on to it. Our practice is the practice of liberation. It's not just an end state. We're actually, actually practicing it from moment to moment. A moment where you grasp, where you hold on to something or push away, is not a happy moment. It's a moment of enslavement, where you're identified and caught. A moment where what replaces it is, oh, a light bulb goes off like in the comic books, and now suddenly mindfulness looks at that attachment and perhaps sees the suffering that maybe is coming from it. And suddenly it either weakens or falls away altogether. And you have a moment of freedom. Maybe it's only three seconds. But those, that's, those are the building blocks of our practice. And so, uh, because life is impermanent, because our body is impermanent, because our relationship to things is impermanent, doesn't mean they're worthless. That would be technically called attachment to emptiness. And I'm afraid that a lot of spiritual teachings stop there. That too is an attachment that will cause suffering. If you want the most sophisticated statement that I know of, it's the Heart Sutra, which no matter what you try, just basically it's let go of everything, for goodness sakes. Which means, while you're alive, live wholeheartedly. When the time comes to die, fully die. What else are you going to do? But it's meant to be followed from moment to moment, and it's something that's quite doable. It's something that is within our reach. 
Become sensitive to those moments when there isn't any awareness of very little and we're identified and we're suffering. And if you look at the suffering, inevitably it's attachment. And who's attached? Me. This is my yogurt that you just took. And it's the last one. Okay, that's a small one. But it's the same dynamic. It's the same prison. Whether a doggy is tied to a, a tree and its rope is uh, 10 feet or 10 yards, it's still imprisoned. So our practice is preparing us for uh, an easy death, a graceful death, in that way as well. That is, by learning how to, how to establish a balanced relationship with the things of this world and with ourselves. Okay, um, short break, not really a break. For those of you who need to go, please, uh, those of you who would like to stay for the questions and answers or the discussion, um, know if you decide to stay that you can leave at any time. I won't consider it rude or anything of that sort. And we'll go for a half hour till about nine, if there's interest. Uh, personally, I know I've said this, and i say it again, I find the discussion the most, uh, the, the best part for me anyway, is that it's because people have been very uh, honest and personal and direct, and uh, I've learned a lot from it, but I just do what you have to do. It doesn't have to be a question or a problem, it could just be your own experience. Please. Return from where? Return from London recently, and it's been a difficult transition for me, and my mind's been occupied and elsewhere sometimes. But um, I was glad to say that um, there are times I'm working with this man, 95-year-old man who lost his wife a year ago and is still deeply in grief and uh, infirmed and getting worse all the time. And um, yeah, just. In working with him, I'm more and more aware of yeah, basically what you're speaking of. Is this is it, and uh, this is where I am headed. And we even joke. I even joke with him that I might go before him. That's true. Yeah. yeah, but let me ask you. Uh, it's not so much a question as a 
let's say the early times when you hadn't, didn't have a practice yet, uh, did, was that valuable for you in any way? Absolutely. In what ways? Can you? you know? uh, um, it was just, it's hard to, to describe, but it was uh, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. You'll have to do better than amazing. Uh, well, I, I'm sorry, you know, I just, I need to, I know it's, even if you have to, I know it may trivialize what you, what you went through, I understand that, but if you can translate it into something that I can... It was um, a difficult place. Our people always assumed when I told them where I worked and what I did that it was difficult because it was young men in their mid and late 20s or early 30s that we were working with and dying as they were dying and working with their families. But I also was uh, working with an amazing team of people who were absolutely dedicated to what we were there for. Yes. And um, uh, I, I don't want to say I lost my fear of death. I guess that would be a bit too melodramatic. But um, I found it, I found it um, somehow beautiful. That's weird. I'm fine. I'm lost in the world. No. But to clean a body at 3 a.m. And um, there was one man who, um, an older nursing assistant, who uh, had a practice of opening the window and he'd say, okay, goodbye now, take care. And uh, I picked that up from him. And, um, and, and, and speaking to the course of the washroom, just was being respectful. And, and okay, here's why I, why I ask. Many worthwhile things can go on in work of that sort. You know, it's sometimes in other traditions it's called God's work. You know, it can, uh, it's good work. You are probably were very helpful uh, to the people at, towards the end, tremendously helpful. But just being exposed to dying people, uh, unless it's related to in a certain way, doesn't necessarily liberate you. If, other, if it did, then the morticians would be among the most liberated groups on the planet. They're not. You know, and they see death day in and day out, or surgeons, or doctors, or nurses, people who are... So there's another step that's required. And it's somehow, even getting comfortable, let's say I'm sure you're, uh, many good things came out of it. I can hear just in the few words you mentioned. Obviously they are, and they are spiritual qualities. Uh, probably you're more compassionate, kinder. Um, did it help you liberate yourself? Then not only are you doing something for the person who's dying, but they're actually giving you the last gift that they have to offer, which is they're helping you to understand uh, what we've been talking about here. And uh, if that can affect you in such a way as to become freer, kinder, etc., then it becomes a spiritual practice in a second. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yes, I do. I guess I, um, I obviously I can't go back to the past. Uh, I, as I say, I didn't have a practice and wasn't there quite yet. But uh, I would hope that uh, if I had a similar experience now, as I did working with this, this old gentleman, uh, I would be relating to it differently, probably closer to what you're saying. Yes. For example, the first the ex experience I mentioned of sitting with a, a, a corpse for many hours, uh, I definitely, it contributed dramatically to help me, me learn the art of observation and to look at my own fears. 
a lot of wonderful things came out of it, made it easier from that point on. But I, don't, I didn't get a whole lot of, um, I didn't quite get the message that it was about me, too. That it wasn't him lying there, but I was lying there as well. So that, because I was still rather new to the practice. That came a little bit later. So that's all I'm getting at, yeah. Can, can, can this then still be applied by, by reflection and hindsight now that I'm developing? Well, sure, why not? Yeah, it depends again. On, uh, yes, it depends again uh, how you do that reflection. If the reflection is taken deeply inside and has juice, you know, w- one good way is to sit before you do the reflection. Do you do this practice or some related practice? Yes. Yeah, uh, is to sit first, calm down, even if it's just a few minutes of breath awareness and then take the reflection in, and uh, you can use it to, in the way that you're suggesting, definitely, yeah. Please. I have a question about um, a certain experience of, of myself that I had in childhood, partly based in the family, cultural acculturation, and partly the faith tradition I was in. Faith tradition? Faith tradition. You mean a particular faith? Yeah. Both of which, without going into detail, uh, led me to a way of spiritual practice at the time, a faith tradition of essentially treating the body as the enemy, treating the body as something essentially bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel it's impeding my practice, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in what that might mean in terms of using meditation yeah. practices. Yeah, no, that, um, I would say these are not called for, <laughs> because I could just reinforce what you're saying. But uh, here's, uh, excuse me, the point is, let's say, probably everyone in this room, all of us are, we're not free of identification with our body, you know. Now, some love their bodies, and they're very happy with what they have, and they think it's extraordinary and beautiful, and, uh, and have a whole room. And other people, no, but they're equally, from this point of view, doing the same thing. They're identified with the body. Now, many people, um, because of, the, of having a somewhat romantic notion of the body, uh, these things of, let's say, going through the 32 parts of the body visualizing what it's like inside, you know, urine, pus, blood, it's a Buddhist meditation, and also this one, on seeing the body decompose, can balance you. But when I had my own training with Ajahn Suwat, who a few of you have met, have met uh, when I got really good at uh, seeing, uh, let's say, certain of the repulsive aspects of the body, you know, no matter how much you, we have images of the body, which can be quite beautiful, and the media's uh, devoted to strengthening those images. But then when you reflect with a quiet mind on, if you unzip this and what you see is blood and urine and feces and pus and synovial fluid and brain matter, you know, that's what's underneath this uh, incredible. So once I got good at that, then he pulled the rug out from under me and had me go the other way. He said, now put it together and see it as, see sort of almost a a Greek view of the body, you know, uh, that it's, it, because it also is a, an amazingly beautiful 
creation. A human body is, and either, they're both true. You know. And what he was trying to do is to get me to be free, so that uh, free of either uh, super-duper positive identifications or negative ones. Many spiritual traditions uh, see the body as the enemy. You know, the only way to get to God, but it, the body is the problem. If I can get rid of that and get to God, uh, that isn't the approach that, that, that uh, I'm suggesting. It's, uh, it's really to steer clear of either att attachment, craving, or aversion. And so perhaps you need a little bit more of the other, you know, to, to appreciate uh, the marvel of having a human body. Uh, and when those old notions come up from your conditioning, you ha I, I believe I don't know you, so I'm making a general statement that may not apply to you. You have to be careful because you can be develop an aversion to that way in which you were brought up. It's sort of like, oh God, uh, they just uh, bent me out of shape with that way of thinking and now I'm stuck with a, uh, it's just an ugly way of looking at life. You know, why couldn't I have and so forth. So then you, uh, you're working hard, you're in a struggle with this old conditioning, but you're replacing it with a new conditioning, you know, which is anti the old one. Whereas in the practice, the gentleness doesn't mean f that it's flaccid or flabby. It means when those old notions come up, which are not complimentary about the body, just see them. Let them come up. Let them be there without either aversion or attachment. Just see whatever it is that comes up. And that's what I meant by receiving it without any separation or intimacy of practice. I mean, because the mind is always very often telling us what's happening. There's just this body, you know. You had your trip laid on you, I had a trip laid on me. Conditioning poured in. But finally, the body is just a body. Here it is. You know, it's poor body. You know, it just does what it does. And then all these different cultures decide what this body is and what its fate is and what it really means and so forth. In the meantime, it's a body. Okay, so the practice is to come to that. Intimacy would be intimate with the, with the, the body as it is, not any notions about it. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Please. But you see, okay, but you see, you're speculating as to what might happen when you die, let's say, or, or one might die. Uh, the hard part about the practice is to let go of all of that. Yeah, and to just be ready for whatever turns up. The truth is you don't know what's going to happen when your time comes, and neither do I. But what we're training, the training is for the mind to be unwavering in its ability to, to pay attention and, and for it to become stronger than anything that comes in front of it. So that, let's say, a frightening, old, terrifying memory from the past, a wound you had, or it comes up, but the awareness, because it's been fashioned, trained, in other words, you've been doing it, is strong enough, and it can see it for what it is. It sees it arise and pass away, just as we're doing now, let's say, in the prime of life. So, you know, we could talk about that, and I'm not saying uh, it's necessarily easy to practice 
during those last days or hours or minutes. Uh, but I would say it would vary depending on who the person is, the quality of their practice, and what they face. You know? So what you say is apparently true. That's what I hear. But for me, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm comfortable with not knowing. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yes. I mean, that's uh, that uh, uh, an ongoing practice can accomplish something like that, so that you're uh, you have a realistic possibility of being able to have a good death, if you want to call it that, or an easy death, or a harmonious death, not one marked by chaos and confusion and torment and uh, denial and so forth, desperation. Yeah, no, that, I, that sounds, sounds like a useful thing to do, but in any case, it's a useful thing to do because your present life will be better if you can re- let go of any of these sources of tension. You're angry at yourself? Yes, that, that's the... Di- yes. That's the great death. That's the real... It's just, for example, I don't know what you're angry at, but let's say you behaved a certain way and now in hindsight you can't... You were such an idiot. Okay. So that was the ego as idiot. Okay. And now the ego... Now you, and then you see it and you can't stand it. It's proven to be idiotic. And now... Of course, we learn, many of us learn as we grow older, as we have experiences, and now uh, you're a wiser person, so the ego says, great, I'll be that one now, and jumps in, puts on the meditator's yogi outfit, and now is pointing to how awful that one was, uh, you know, that egomaniac who did stupid things with uh, men and women and drank too much, you know, whatever it was, you know, we all, uh, and this as if that's some different thing altogether where it's the exact same process. So you have to begin to see that um, you haven't stepped, you're in the same home range. You know, it's like the doggy is tethered to a tree and it's running here, it's running there, uh, it's still caught. Now, how to step out of that is to give up the struggle. Uh, for example, you can't stop having some regret at it as to how you were, let's say, earlier on. I think probably all of us could share that with you. But what you can do, and uh, do you mind if I use this, because this is an important point, I feel, throughout. Often when we have what we think of as a problem, then there's a, a, a hunger to solve the problem. And in our haste to solve the problem, we never get to see the problem very clearly, because we're so goal-oriented and motivated to solve it. What's radical about th- these instructions is that it's, it's of course, we, we want to solve the problem, but the emphasis is put on the approach to the problem. It's not that you have to keep, uh, it's not the, the problem so much, it's how we're approaching it. So the, your mind is exactly the way it is, but can you approach it in a, in a radically different way, which is without judgment, without evaluation, uh, to see that civil war going on, but to not take sides. To see one mind that is, has regrets and the other mind that is uh, chiding it, or you know, however it, it comes up in a given moment. That's radically different, and it's that uh, the way we approach our experience is what frees us. 
and so that we all must age, we all must get sick, we all must die. What the Buddha is talking about here is a radically different way to approach that fact. The fact doesn't change. The body must go through what it goes through. What, it, what, does ch what we're asked to change is how we look at it. And the training is to equip, it, equip us to look at it in a radically different way. Is everyone clear on that? Okay, good. Please. He died at age 17? I understand. Yeah, the famous middle way, you've heard that phrase? Um, you know, for example, sometimes, especially in scientific, intellectual communities, 
there's a lot of criticism of religion, including the Buddhist religion, as full of superstitions and, you know, uh, uh, the rebirth doctrine is, you can't verify it, or most of us can't seem to it, uh, but it's comforting, it helps people not be quite as afraid of dying, that they, or that you're going to go to heaven, or, you know, every religion seems to have some, uh, something. Okay. Or what I've been feeding you all, you know, uh, oh, I, I remember, you know, sort of like, death is inevitable. Death is inevitable, that's right. And then you weave, go around that, you see this one died, and Rabin died, and this, and, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and in a certain way, you're, it's a skillful use of, of thought. You're using thoughts that go in the same direction as wisdom. Because the truth is, what you're pointing at, you don't have control. That's a fact, it's not an ideology, okay? So then we devise a set of useful Dharma thoughts. So it's, it's sort of thoughts that are pointing in the right direction. But it isn't as deep as openness, as just total openness. And I think you, maybe you don't have to work quite as hard with your young son. That is, just notice uh, when uh, your love has shadings of possessiveness and attachment. And you know, it's not like you have to visualize something terrible happening to him and seeing what that does to you. Uh, I have a funny feeling that that might be such a hot way to go. But I don't, you see, finally, in my own, I've been using death awareness stuff for many years now. The techniques are useful. All the things that I'm introducing. But for me, what's helped the most, and so that's, this is my bias, and I'll share it with you, is life itself is the greatest teacher. So that if you pay attention, things are going to happen with your son as he goes off to school, as he makes friends, as he gets rejected, as he gets this, doesn't get that, uh, you don't hear from him, this and that, uh, give you ample opportunity to practice with your uh, clinging, with your uh, unrealistic fear, with your apprehension, negative activity. You see what I'm getting at? I don't think you have to make a special visualization out of it. Uh, you can just, life itself is teaching you. you okay. But deeper than reflection or these skillful uses of uh, Dharma thoughts is, uh, is really the heart of what Vipassana is, the intimate, direct experience of, of your experience. And that your experience is what it is. Now, uh, here's what I was going to say. I was brought up in a half of my environment was Orthodox Jewish and the other half was Marxist. My father came from a long line of rabbis, 14 generations, if that's enough, and who turned totally, it's all a bunch of nonsense. And I love my father, I totally identify, but I went to seven years of Orthodox Hebrew school to please my mother and my grandparents. So I was like a schizophrenic. But uh, not really because I believed my father, because he was my daddy. <laughs> he wouldn't, he had to be right. Okay, and so I had a very negative view of religion. And my early years didn't provide me anything to I said, you know, the old man was correct as I started to see religion, organized religion. But more and more, starting way back, I realized that there are people walking the planet now who don't have religion, who don't have dharma, who don't, 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 are so exposed and helpless. I don't see the advantage of that. And that even some of the more superficial notions for some people at least helps them get through life. And I, I personally do not feel, feel that I want to pull the rug out from under them, unless they're a person who, who really can work with what comes up when you pull the rug out from under you. Those of you who have started to walk 
the road, this, the path of the Buddhist teaching, you're asking for trouble. Because you're asking to have the rug pulled out from under you, to not be identified with all these beliefs and ideologies and all these comforting things. Remember, even at the time of the Buddha, when he was asked about rebirth, he gave people the option to not believe in it. He said, uh, you know, if it's true and you live a good life, then the karma of that means you'll have a good rebirth. But maybe you're right. Maybe there's a bunch of baloney. Okay? But if you live a good life, then this life will be better because of the way you treat people and how they treat you back and so forth. So that, um, it's, to me, it's a matter of becoming more real and it does take a certain amount of courage and letting go of, of uh, sources of security which are hard to let go of because they do work to some degree. Now, that's what I hear you moving towards, am I correct? Yeah. yeah. Just go, just move, don't get, don't make that into too much of a project. Good, good. And don't visualize your son having a big accident. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's what I was getting at. You said it more briefly and better. Okay. Um, I think we better, I think they have to close this place at a certain point. Can we just have a moment's silence? an idea which we can take up next time, that learning how to live and learning how to die are the very same things. They're not different. Okay, I don't know when the next talk is, but I think, uh, I can't say I know when it's going to end. It's going to end when it does, but I, uh, I think we're getting close. <laughs> <laughs>